Support. Support. Support for this podcast is brought to you by the, the Kellogg Innovation Entrepreneurship Initiative. Think bravely. Think differently. Think collaboratively. But now it's which company do you want membership of? Or which company do you want to belong to? Right? And so it's way more than, it's not way more, but it's more than who makes the best cup of coffee. Go into that, because I don't think I've ever heard that. You're listening to My Startup Journey, a show that highlights the business and individual stories of innovators, educators, and Kellogg students. Our guest is Lucas Phillips from Brew Bite Coffee. My name is Maruki Harai, the host of My Startup Journey, and today we talk coffee. I used to think that if you paid $2 for a cup of coffee, it was a good cup of coffee. If you paid three bucks, it was a better cup of coffee. And if you paid four bucks, it was premium coffee. Not anymore after talking to Lucas Phillips from Brew Bike Coffee, a student-managed cold brew coffee shop in Northwestern's Annenberg Hall and Main Library. Brew Bike recently placed second in VentureCat and raised $800,000. In this episode, Lucas shares how his New York City coffee experience shaped his views on brand ethos and identity. But first, Lucas talks about his beginnings on the Upper West Side, his young start at entrepreneurship, and his favorite coffee shops. Growing up in New York is, it's just a pressure cooker environment. Um, the, just the amount of wealth and success and lack of failure that I was, like, that I, I was, exposed to was um, it was I mean it was it, it wasn't hard but like I didn't it, I can't characterize it as hardship right I was in a high school where 140 with a class of 145 kids eight of them are at Northwestern six of them went to Yale two or three are at Harvard I mean over 25% of the class is at probably a top 10 school. My family would vacation at Fire Island every summer, which is a island off of Long Island. It's about three miles or something long, but it's very thin though. One side's the bay, one side is the ocean, and there's no cars, it's all boardwalks. I took a ferry there and just bike everywhere. So every morning at like five, I'd wake up and go fishing, and then I would sell my catch. If I got a big fish, I would sell it to the market. If I got little fish, I would try to sell them. I would fillet them. This was like when I was 11 or 12 years old. I would fillet them and sell them on the dock in the daytime. Uh, And it was never because I wanted pocket change. It was just because I enjoyed that process. I think it was cool to wake up every morning and like do this thing and, and have fun doing it and work on something and then take the product of that, which at the time was these terrible tasting fish that I caught and tried to sell, and put, put them on ice in a presentable way and try to sell them to people, mm-hmm. and the interactions that I had with people, and I mean, those are really fun. So when people say, what are your hobbies? I will say unique dining experiences, because it's, it's not just the actual thing that I'm eating, it's the, it's the experience of 
walking into a restaurant and just everything till I sign the check and walk out, right? So at a place like Green Street Smoked Meats, which is in the West Loop, it's a bread and soda cough restaurant. It's this crazy experience from when you walk in. The whole it's this warehouse that is, and they have supreme punching bags. Yeah, right? <laughs> I thought it was really cool. And I feel like as a New Yorker, you can kind of oh yeah respect that. Yeah, yeah, totally. So and 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 so I, it, it's a great space. Everything Brennan Sotokoff touches is awesome. And and it's it's so it's it's the it's the whole experience, right? And then it's the music, it's the smell, it's the drinks, it's the company, it's it's the layout and the aesthetic and the service, it's it's everything. So I've just always been drawn to that uh, experience and trying up new places and going with friends. And and it's just I mean, in high school, one way that I did that was I would go to cool coffee shops and do my homework there. I had, I had a number of cool coffee shops on the Upper West Side where I would just go do my homework. A number of times I went, I would go to Brooklyn to do Devotion, which is my favorite coffee shop in, I've, I've ever been to. Is it in Williamsburg or? It's in Williamsburg, I believe. What attracted you to it, to those places? If you look up Devotion, like you'll, people who are any listener will get it. Um, it's just like brick walls, cool, um, like leather furniture. There's one of the walls is covered in plants and grass. There's a skylight, so the lighting is really good. The coffee's amazing, right? But but it's not all about the. Co- I mean, the, my whole thing is coffee can only be so good. Like you can have the best cup of coffee. But if you get it at Dunkin' Donuts, Dunkin' Donuts is charging $8 for the best coffee in the world, and you buy it, it's still not going to seem as good as getting a $4 cup of coffee at Devotion, right? Because it's just, it's, it's way more than the actual liquid. And so I would try to find the places that had everything. Now we shift our conversation to the elephant in the room, Starbucks. Whether coffee people love or hate it, Starbucks is the coffee standard. Our conversation morphs from brand ethos to coffee identity to marketing strategy. I mean, that was before my time, right? I was born in 1997, so I didn't see the rise of Starbucks, but by the time I started drinking coffee, Starbucks was everywhere. And I've never, I've never liked Starbucks hot coffee. I, I, or cold. I can never consume. I still can't consume it. I remember having a taste of it once, and I've never had it since. It's just too bitter for me. But what I've seen, and I think what's happening, is there's a rise of a lot more um, specialty coffee shops. Is I think the term. So places like La Colombe, Intelligentsia. Now it's Limitless Coffee and Tea. We bu- we're buying coffee from. There's, um, there's, there's a, a number, and, and now there's, there's so many of them, I couldn't even list, start to list them. Irving Farm Birch Coffee are two of my favorites in New York. And Starbucks is losing market share because there are smaller players who are less corporate and more local that, who have more appealing brands to, to a lot of people. And I, again... I really don't think it's that product-driven. Uh, if anyone's on the front lines of product, it's probably Starbucks. 
because they do more R&D, like R&D work than I think any of these places. But the actual brand that these other smaller chains are um, bringing to the marketplace are just more appealing to people. And, and the world is getting less corporate. I mean, consumers are choosing less corporate products, right? So that's what we're doing. Um, and we're trying, we're trying to ride that wave a little bit. Um, you know, some people would say that you can't have a brew bike, you can't have an Intelli, you can't have a La Cologne without Starbucks because they were the ones who positioned this $3 coffee. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think there's a point to that. I mean, and I just want to hear kind of your thoughts on... On that? Yeah, on that. Just, I mean, you, you It's know, interesting. No one's ever asked me that, and no one's ever... I've never heard that. Okay. But I totally agree. Uh, I mean, Starbucks is great. Like, Starbucks has... Brewbike, yeah, Brewbike wouldn't be here if it weren't for Starbucks, right? La Paloma would definitely not. And investors wouldn't see potential in these businesses if it weren't for Starbucks. They all want the next Starbucks, right? So it's, it's a way to measure success. Uh, Starbucks is kind of a benchmark, and it's a goal, I guess. And it's, uh, it's something that we've... It's a reference point that we've used countless times. I mean, we use it to raise money. Like, we'll, we'll talk about how our prices are in line with Starbucks. And that saves us three minutes of explaining our pricing strategy. Because we can just say it's in line with Starbucks and then everyone's like, okay. What's great about Starbucks is I know if I'm in Tokyo uh, and I'm in Shibuya, they have like one of the world's busiest Starbucks and you know, I can get a cup of coffee and I'm caffeinated, right? And totally. It, the engine's running. But it tells me something about the quality that you're looking for because I think you position your quality against it. So this is strategic, right? The, how you position your product. Um, and also the price point, like you were talking about, like you can communicate that really clearly. And I think that without Howard Schultz, you can't have that conversation, right? And you can't have totally this, you know, this premium coffee. Because our strategy is not Starbucks. The first thing it is to anyone is not Starbucks. That's, that's how you claim right? it on, on the website, yeah. Then that's, I think, how independent coffee shops position themselves initially is we think we can make a better coffee, cup of coffee than Starbucks can. And it may be a little higher, but you're willing to pay for it because of the quality. See, the, 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 the thing about that now, right, is it's, I think that it maybe used to be that way, but now it's which company do you want membership of? Or which company do you want to belong to, right? And so it's way more than, it's not way more, but it's more than who makes the best cup of coffee. Go into that, because I don't think I've ever heard that. Can you explain that a little more? Well, it's, it's not only who makes the best coffee, cup of coffee, but it's who do I want, whose logo do I want to walk around with on my cup every day, right? Who's... It's, it's, and and you'll, you're seeing it in clothing a lot. Like, think about the person who walks down the street wearing Patagonia. What is... The, like, I don't even... I'm not even going to go into what that says about that person because everyone knows what it says. Or the person walking down the street wearing Gucci or the person walking down the street wearing another highly branded um, form of clothing or something that says a statement about who they are and what they consume. 
let me let me frame this in a way that I can understand it. So it's like the Instagram picture. If there was one picture of a person, and you saw it on Instagram. What would you think about that person? Is that kind of where? Similar. It's something like that. Okay. I mean, I think it's uh, right. It's the whole influencer thing. Yeah. Um, how there's these people who have tons of followers, and it, they're curating their profile to consume certain brands or. In, not it's no longer consuming it's promoting and getting paid to say this brand embodies me and if you want to be like me you should consume this brand too right and there's brands like Nike for example that who have, I think Nike's brand statement is there's an athlete in everyone or, or something like that right which is way more than sneakers it's not product focused it's belief based uh, David Kelbach is one of our mentors uh, from Tacklebox in, and, and the Garage Connects with him, and he explained this to us about three or four months ago, and it, I, we've thought about it a lot, right? Um, it's that brand statement, any athlete that would, would, would want to be a part of that, or if anyone who's aspiring to be athletic would want to be a part of the Nike brand and consume it. Um, what we're going for is doesn't really exist in in the coffee market right now there's no brand that is for young people coffee the the youngest brands i think are for people right out of college uh, and so we are with this student run model we think that we can really get into the college coffee scene and by doing that we will be the first coffee brand to interact with these young people and and that's, I mean, that's super valuable because then we can follow them until, uh, like, after they graduate. And as long as we can continue, we can find the right messaging, right, which we've done at Northwestern, I think. In just three years, we have a lot of clout there. I think what's interesting is I never thought of coffee as a lifestyle choice. I think when I think of coffee, I mean, I think of the product Utility. itself. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like I prefer... Intelli because I like to drink Intelli. I've never heard it as I like Intelli because it says something about who I am. Well, there might be coffee on this shelf in your in a Citarella or like a New York, let's say, that tastes way better than Intelli, but that packaging is pretty cool mm -hmm. and it catches your eye. It's yeah. the same as craft beer. So, and and I and I don't think that's wrong, by the way. I think that it's if there's brands that can tap into people's emotions, I mean, I consume brands that tap into my emotions, and I'm okay with that. I, there's a lot of people who are like, I don't like that, and judge it negatively. Yeah. Um, but if it increases people's happiness and helps them live a life that they want to live by X, Y, Z guidelines, then great. Yeah, and, and I think that the fashion aspect is like a really good example of what you're trying to do is you're not just talking about coffee at that point. You're really talking about what who do you identify with? It's it the the common term now is brand ethos. So what is the ethos of consuming that brand that you put out? Or what, yeah. What, I mean, go ahead. I mean, yeah, I mean that's that's I think I've explained it. Yeah. I, I mean I, I think that I've never heard anyone explain it. Like, every time you, you, I mean, it's just mind-boggling to me because
because every time you kind of go into a Kellogg classroom about coffee, it's about the quality of the coffee, not about necessarily who you are. Now, they may say something like, if you go to Dunkin' Donuts, you are a truck driver or whatever, you know, like a nine-to-five commuter in the you know, suburbs or whatever. If you drink, um, um, you know, Let's say Blue Bottle Coffee, you live in Brooklyn. So Blue Bottle is like Brooklyn or I'd say San Francisco. Um, There's this company, Black Rifle Coffee, I think is what it's called. What is that? I have no idea. Yeah. So, and you, that's, okay, that's great. So I think it's called Black Rifle. It's like the Blue Bottle for like non-urban liberals like on the other end of the spectrum and it's and it's really successful and we don't even know about it so and it probably has amazing product so the i'm sure it does right because it's it's a big coffee company so it's more than the product itself it's how people target the branding and i think that what's taught in schools or what i've learned in class is still very product based and, I, and there's a shift happening towards more belief-based branding. So, like, we believe there's an athlete in everyone, Nike, and they're ahead of the trend on that, and there's a lot of other businesses that are doing that. Um, limitless Coffee has, like, we believe potential is limitless. Someone's potential is limitless. That's, I think that's their belief statement or something like that. And what that does is it just taps into a whole other level of emotions. And yet, I, I, it's not mainstream yet. But if you, I bet you if you go and look at the most successful or the most valuable brands, not companies, but brands, they're all doing that at this point. And what I'm noticing is that there's a lot more, like the, the brands that I want to consume and that I think that resonate, that, that people who consume Brewbite coffee consume are ones that are belief-based. And and I'm intrigued by that and I'm excited to see how we can grow with it. After the break, Lucas describes how he turned the simple coffee problem into brew bike. You're listening to My Startup Journey. My name is Lucas Phillips. Um, I am the founder and chief growth officer of Brewbike and you're listening to my startup journey. So if you're trying to fuel your day and you're on Northwestern's campus, you can swing by our store in Annenberg Hall, Cafe Bergson in the library, or The Rock if it's a beautiful day. In the pipeline is UT Austin, where we'll be launching in the next few months. We have a bunch of other campuses on our radar, so check out our website to see where we're going next. We have a Facebook account, uh, facebook.com slash brewbikecoffee, instagram.com slash brewbikecoffee, and an awesome website, brewbikecoffee.com. Thanks for listening. Earlier, Lucas shared his insights on brand ethos and the coffee industry. Now, Lucas talks about how he incorporated his experiences and ideas into a solution at the garage, Northwestern University's startup incubator. When I got to Northwestern, I jumped into things at the garage, which is the student incubator, and threw myself in there. I mean, I really got involved as much as I could, as quickly as I could, because I knew that was where I needed to be in order to 
work towards my goal. And Melissa Kaufman told us two things. She said, one, you're not going to make money for a really long time, so don't think about money. And two, you need to find a problem before you find any solution. Like, don't think about your business model. Just think about the problem that you're solving in the marketplace. Um, and when I arrived in Northwestern, it had just opened. The garage literally opened its doors the fall when I arrived, which was perfect. So there's a group of us that people joke about. They call us the garage firstborn. And there's like a few different startups that came out of that group that are, that are doing quite well, which is exciting. Um, anyway, so I recruited, my, I recruited a partner, actually, one of my friends from high school, Brandy Gadul. I kind of came up with the problem, and, which was it's too hard to get great coffee on college campuses. It took months to refine it to that, but it was somewhere in my mind, and it was student-run coffee shop was the solution. Student-run coffee business was the solution. So with that, I talked to her. She was in. We were both really down to build a cool brand. That was, again, we didn't, we didn't know that was what it was, but that's, what, that's all we worked on, kind of like the vibe. And by... So we, we, we were 18. We sent an email to the director of dining, Ken Field, who we met with, who then was like, no, you can't open your own student-run coffee shop on this campus, but you might be able to do it with Sodexo, who was the food provider at the time. So we worked in a Sodexo coffee shop in the library, Cafe Bergson, for three months, all different shifts from the first thing in the morning to literally like 2 a.m. in, that, in the morning. Um, it sucked. I mean, we didn't, the work experience we didn't like, the employees were so unhappy, and the brand, no one liked this place, right? And, and we quickly learned that we could work with Sodexo, but it would be working for Sodexo, it wouldn't be working with Sodexo. And so we, did, we quit, and we wanted to do something entrepreneurial, not entrepreneurial. So at that point, we had nothing, we had no ideas, we had no funding, we were NU student coffee. We, didn't, we were not Brewbike yet, because we just wanted to keep this filler name until we had a real idea. So we thought of a coffee bus, too high capital, and just not happening. We thought of a coffee tent, too operations heavy, uh, permit wouldn't have worked. And then we met Matt Matros, who is the founder of Protein Bar, and he had just exited and flown around the world for a year when he came and gave a talk at the garage about this new coffee company he was opening called Limitless Coffee and Tea that was going to be the biggest cold brew brand in the nation or whatever, which it's actually you know, could be in the next few years. Um, he was done talking, and we just grabbed him and brought him to a room in the garage and picked his brain. And he was like, you should just get a coffee bike, one of these cold brew bites. Cold brew's on the, cold brew's on the rise. You're ahead of the trend right now. This was 20, early 2016. We were way ahead of the cold brew trend. Um, and so we quickly threw together a crowdfunding page, uh, made a cute little video, and raised 10 grand within two or three weeks. Our goal was five grand. Then Melissa Kaufman was like, oh my god, these guys are rock stars, we're going to put them in the Summer Accelerator program, give them another 10k. So we 20,000. Believe it or not, we still maxed out a credit card that just got paid down with the Venture Cap uh, second place winnings. But, uh, so like 25k in capital, I'd say from tw between 25 and 35k all along until the pitch, kind of this spring when we fundraised, is how we got to 150,000 in sales. Um, and so that fall, that summer in the Accelerator, we fabricated the bike with Heritage Bicycles in Chicago. That fall, we launched the bike. We almost went out of business at the end of the fall. We had no idea what to do after it started snowing. We then got an opportunity to open up a retail shop indoors. 
which is the brew bike shop in Annenberg Hall, which is the one you were talking about earlier. Uh, we only sell grab-and-go things there, so cold, like to really keep a quick cycle time. And then in the spring, we launched a third line of business, keg subscriptions. So fraternities and sororities pay us to install kegerators in their kitchens, and then we deliver five-gallon kegs of our cold brew on mornings if they choose. Every line of business is directly targeted at bringing really good coffee really conveniently. And so that fall, we were doing $180 in sales a day. and the late spring, we were doing like $1,100 a day in sales. It was craziness. Uh, so if I understand this correctly, the first iteration was you would go on bikes across Evanston or we just... would park our brew bike in the most high traffic foot locations on campus where coffee's needed most. Right? So at the rock or in front of tech are the t- really the two spots that we tested where people would love to be able to get really good coffee incredibly conveniently. Because we only served cold brew on tap, mm-hmm. hot coffee, and grab-and-go pastries and really quality food that didn't need preparation. How does the operations work? So where do you actually brew the coffee? We brew the coffee. We started out in the basement of my fraternity in the kitchen. Um, We don't do that anymore. Don't worry. (laughs) That was a commercial kitchen, too. Mm -hmm. In fact, we were the the only business in the city of Evanston that used that space as a commissary. And so by, at the end of that year, the city changed its regulations to say that fraternities and sorority kitchens couldn't be commissaries for businesses. Be- I think it's because of us. So it's a brew bike rule. And so what did we do? We called them and we said, so what's a commissary? And they told us exactly the guidelines again. And then we went out and we found a space with the university that, that works. Mm-hmm. Coffee's pretty low uh, liability in terms of food safety. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a matter of just having a space that checks all the boxes and making sure it's clean. But there's really no special sauce to to brewing the coffee and all of that. And what what is the process like? Do you um, you start? I mean, is it like a, a tub of? It's a tub of coffee and water, specific ratios for different flavors and amount of time. Sixteen hours is what we do. So this is cold brew. Yeah, okay. it's all cold brew. It's all cold brew. Strain it dilute it because it's a concentrate after we strain it and then pour it into a keg, seal it, and take it to where it's being served. And that's a specific advantage of brew bike is that you can actually, I'm assuming if you put it in a keg, you can store it for longer times. So. Oh my God, we have coffee in. I mean, we would never serve this to customers, but uh, there's coffee that I drink that's like 60 days old now. Yeah, it's August 1. We made this coffee in early June. It's still in our fridge. I'll dump it at the end of the summer. But over the summer, like, we have leftover inventory, and I just fill up growlers and bring them to my room, and they still taste the exact same. Um, the other advantage of kegs is that, right, you have all of this pre-prepared coffee. So all you need to do is take it to the location, tap it, and just pour it. It's really quick cycle time as opposed to making a latte at Starbucks. You don't need an espresso machine. You don't need an espresso machine. Yeah. And there's nothing more frustrating than waiting behind people who are ordering double macchiatos with skim milk and vanilla, and it's just, ugh, I hate that. And can you tell me about how you you staffed the organization so it's all students? So I'm a learning and organizational change major. I'm I'm an effective leader, but not as good of a manager. manager. Um, So I've found other people that I can partner with and kind of lean on for management stuff. 
that's Eli Goldstein, right? Who's Eli is actually launching our Arizona location right now. He's a first full-time employee and partner. And then uh, Eli, when he graduated, Carla Hernandez is now our director of HR. And so these people are amazing managers and they hire students. And there's so many students who want to work for us. Um, we get like 50 to 80 applications for like five or six openings every quarter. And that's because we are paying competitive amount to other campus jobs, but we're providing such an empowering workplace. Why do students want to work for Brewbike? It's just, it's all by students. There's no board manager who wishes he or she were doing something better with their time. Uh, everyone, everyone on the team is doing more than what is, I guess, culturally expected for them at this point in their lives, I think. So like Carla, for example, is managing 40 employees. I mean, that type of experience, I don't think college students get, but they're more than capable of doing. And they rise to the occasion with the right tools and kind of management of letting them fail and then discussing the failures and learning from them and improving. And so we think that that's a replicable thing that we can create on other campuses, especially now that entrepreneurship is so hot. Let's talk about your expansion plan. So you plan on expanding to Arizona? Yeah, where we'll probably need 80 to 100 students. Really? I think so. At the University of Arizona? Yeah, University oh, of Arizona. It's a big campus. It's like the biggest campus, I think, in the U.S. It's one of them. We're trying to do five bikes, one shop, like 20 keg subscriptions account, 20 keg subscription accounts by year two. I think the Northwestern, there's a lot more potential for growth in Northwestern and in Chicago, at UChicago maybe. And so we're, we're looking into that as well. How do you kind of see the five-year roadmap? So as we grow to many campuses, I think the brand is going to get traction. There's going to be room for CPG as well. If we can position our subscription or CPG, whatever it is, correctly, you could see a college student graduating and ordering brew by coffee to their home every morning as a reminiscent of college type thing. That's, or not reminiscent of college, but as a something that connects them to their college experience. And we need to find the right positioning for that. But like, this goes back to the brand thing, right? So why would someone graduate from college, move to another big city and want to buy brew by coffee? It's totally emotional. There would be no reason for them to do it other than that. We wish the Brewbike team best of luck as they expand throughout the country. Once again, a special thanks to Lucas. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. And until next time, this is Naruki Harai from My Startup Journey. Now here is your Easter egg. I can ask you this question. What, what was your sort of go-to meal in New York when you were eating out? Mm-hmm. Um... It kind of depends on the neighborhood. Uh, I think it was always an Italian spot or a sushi spot. In my neighborhood on the Upper West Side, there was this place, Celeste, on 85th and Amsterdam. That's like the neighborhood, uh, one location spot. And the, the owner was always there, and I knew we would just go, and he knew every patron. Uh-huh. And then down lower on the Upper West Side, there was this place called Parm. That's a Carbone restaurant. Yeah. Uh, so I'd go there with my friends. Uh, that was more like a friend's place when, I don't know, it was, it's just a totally different vibe. It's like updated and 
it's a Carbone restaurant. And then downtown, there's this place in Porio that I love to go. Mm-hmm. My all time, actually, my all time favorite meal, I can't believe this didn't pop up, is Cafe Habana. Never heard of it. Where is it's it? It's on Prince and Elizabeth. It's a tiny corner Cuban spot. There's one in Malibu, there's one in Miami, I believe, and there's one in Brooklyn. They have the best Cuban sandwich you'll ever have. They have the best elotes you'll ever have, which is that corn with all the cheese and stuff on top. Uh, and really good drinks, really strong drinks. And so when I was in high school, we could all go down there and drink and eat. And over time, I got to be close with the, the, the waiters there. I mean, I was there probably every week or every other week for my senior year of high school. Uh, and that, that's like, it's, it, when I go home to New York, home includes a trip to Cafe Havana. <laughs> <laughs>